Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kosesnov. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome as my guest, Catherine Solman, Dr. Catherine Solman. Catherine um, studied medicine at Oxford University and at the Royal Free School of Medicine in London. She trained in internal medicine and oncology before graduating as a general practitioner in the mid-90s. Amongst the very many hats that she wears, she is currently the director of Penny Bron UK, which is a registered charity with a seat in Bristol in the south of England that helps those with a cancer diagnosis live well with cancer. So, Catherine, it's taken us a while to get together, but thank you for taking the time to come and talk to me today. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to it. Great. Let's get stuck in. So, Catherine, it's not a normal practice for a classically trained physician to go looking at maybe other more holistic, more person-oriented modes of studying medicine. So why don't you tell us just a little bit about how how you ended up in this track? Because your position at Penny Bron certainly wasn't the first foray into the world of, of uh let's say, alternative or integrative medicine? No, you're right. And I think I was incredibly lucky that just by a kind of coincidence, when I was a medical student, an undergraduate medical student at Oxford University, which was really a very classical kind of biomedical model university, there happened to be a conference um, organized by the newly set up British Holistic Medical Association on um, childbirth and cancer holistic approaches. And for some reason, you know, a friend just gave me this leaflet. I had nothing to do that day and I wandered along and it was the most um, mind expanding and inspiring um, conference that, I, that I'd been to. I hadn't been to that many conferences, but I think I was already being slightly weighed down by the just very reductionist fact-based learning that we were doing it. We hadn't really gone into hospitals. We hadn't met patients. So it was very dry. And suddenly here were these amazing doctors and practitioners who were melding um, different um, approaches, talking about things in a sort of more philosophical um, and more joined up way than I'd experienced. Um, I'd, I'd done a physics A level and I'd been quite interested in metaphysics and sort of philosophy. And so this, this kind of really spoke to me and I just joined as a student member. I think it was really cheap and I thought nothing more of it, but kept getting these newsletters, which again were, were just food for thought. And when I moved to London, I joined the students group of the British Holistic Medical Association, which had representatives from all the London medical schools, but also really importantly, students from colleges of naturopathy and osteopathy. There were some counseling students there. There were some nursing students. There were some acupuncture students. And so we had this very lively um, group and we, we sort of invited our own speakers. We met in the crypt under Marylebone Health Centre, which is at Marylebone Church, which was one of these pioneering holistic um, general practices, which had a range of different complementary practitioners who all kind of supported us in different ways. And I think before I kind of was almost tribalized, you know, before my, my medical persona was formed, I was already learning and, and appreciating these different ways of thinking about things and these different approaches, which I think is really quite important. Uh, you know, as I've grown and as I've met other doctors, it's, it's kind of harder, I think, once you've, once you've sort of, um, developed your own, your own niche and your own, you know, you've been, almost, I suppose, institutionalized in your own profession, then I think breaking down those barriers to rebuild some, some other connections is a bit harder. And I think I was very lucky that actually as a student, I was already exposed to a lot of this stuff and made friends and really started to think, well, all of us are centering around the person in the middle who, you know, is in distress, who, had a, who has a health crisis or wants to prevent a health crisis. We're all working towards the same aim. We're just coming at it from different ways and we can learn more about each other's approaches so that we can help the person in the middle better because each of us has tools that have their limitations and their strengths. And if we can share, um, then usually we expand the toolbox that somebody in the middle can use. And so then I kind of, from, from that, um, I started, you know, doing a, a, you know, a, a brief training in acupuncture, medical acupuncture, a brief training in medical homeopathy. I did my elective in China in a traditional Chinese medicine hospital. Um, I then was incredibly lucky in 2008 to be awarded a scholarship to go and study um, at the University of Arizona on their fellowship in integrative medicine program. 
which is probably one of the best programs for um, conventionally trained healthcare professionals in integrative medicine. And it, that was a wonderful experience. It was a distance learning course over two years. Um, but I'm also very lucky to work in Bristol where there are a group of like-minded um, and an increasing group of like-minded doctors and healthcare professionals who are all beginning um, beginning to or already quite established in, in seeing things a bit differently and being a bit more open to those approaches. So, you know, I've, I'm an honorary lecturer at the University of Bristol, where one of the professors has also done a homeopathy training. Another professor has done an anthroposophic training. So there is this kind of, you know, they might keep it quite quiet, but there is this open-mindedness. Um, and we run a really interesting um curriculum for the undergraduate medical students, which includes more on nutrition, more on stress and resilience than, than maybe other medical schools too. So I'm involved in that sort of to some extent too, which is very exciting. Oh, that's that's fabulous because I mean training up the next generation is is key, isn't it? Absolutely. So you're um, the uh, director of Penny Bron. Um, could you tell medical us? director? I'm not the I'm not the director. I'm just medical the medical director. Director. <laughs> director. Uh, my apologies. Some would say perhaps that's the most important role. Although <laughs> if, if the wheels don't turn, then nothing happens. So <laughs> exactly. exactly, there is a there is a show to be kept on the road as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So why don't you tell us? little bit about the history of this charity and um, how it's actually structured and what what's the point of the exercise and how does it really help people? Well, we're just at coming up to our 40th anniversary next year, so it will be a really exciting year. So the charity was originally set up um, by two inspirational women, Penny Braun and Pat Pilkington, her friend, and Penny was a social worker by background who trained in traditional Chinese medicine and was um, a ac working acupuncturist when she developed breast cancer and realized for herself that there was much more that she felt she needed to, to live well and to really have the best chances of healing and, and getting healthier in herself than what she was being offered conventionally. And she did an amazing kind of round the world tour of what was available and, and came back saying, we must start something like this in England um, it, it was in its in its early days quite an alternative centre. I think the world of conventional medicine and the kind of complementary world were much more polarised than they are today now. And, and I don't even think the term integrative medicine was around at that point. So she, you know, she established a group of professionals. Um, who were all working voluntarily at the beginning, nutritional therapists, complementary therapists, counsellors, psychotherapists, um, to sort of attend to the whole person and felt that actually for her certainly, and, and she recognised that for an increasing numbers of other people affected by cancer, there's much more to it than, than some of the, um, especially at that time, really quite invasive treatments that were being offered. Um, and so it, it went from strength to strength, really. It established a, a real following, became an international center, op offered retreats and courses for people so that they would be taught how to help themselves, um, how to, how to start sharing the responsibility of their wellness with, with the medical profession, even if the medical profession didn't particularly want to share at that point. But I think the world has become a lot more open to things like lifestyle medicine and the, the world of complementary medicine has, um, you know, to, 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 a larger extent professionalized in terms of you know pro proper accredited trainings and many many more degree courses much more research being done still still not enough research but but much more so it's been easier for the world to come together and i would say that in the last um 10 15 years there have been some important changes at penny Brown. we have become much more integrative and i'll explain a bit more about that in a minute but also we've we've in the last seven, eight years, maybe even longer, our, all our services are free. So it started off as a very small sort of voluntary charity, but then quite quickly as it expanded, it needed to, it didn't have any sources of funding, so it started charging for its services. Um, but now we've made this commitment to really offer all of our core services free. So nobody is excluded on the, on the grounds of means or wealth from coming and using our services. And so people can come and stay. So we offer a combination of residential and non-residential services. So the residential things uh, are available to anybody who can travel to, to us and they 
usually stay for a couple of nights and a couple of days in in groups of about 12 12 people which is a mixture of people with a cancer diagnosis or people supporting somebody so it could be friends partners children parents um because we really recognize that those people have <clears throat> important needs as well that are under a huge amount of stress and that if they can be helped um, to build their own resilience that can be a really um, important part of keeping the person with the cancer as well as possible so the residential services would usually offer a, a kind of space to get away from um, the busyness and the sort of confusion of life a, a place to sort of process to reflect and to learn about the things that can make a difference, the things, the tools and techniques that can really help people build their immune systems, support their digestion, strengthen their mental um, uh, resilience, um, connect them with the things that matter to them in their lives, the sort of spiritual aspects. We, we, we really encourage people to, to remember again that they are a whole person. Sometimes the experience of being diagnosed with cancer and, and the tests and the treatments that are offered can focus so much on the physical that the rest of you goes out the window and it's certainly most people experience as they go through the kind of conveyor belt of, of cancer treatment that there isn't much regard paid to how the rest of you is doing it's a lot of it's focused on, on the very physical aspect so we really help people reconnect with themselves reconnect with the impact that the cancer's had but also the impact that they're their holistic lifestyles are having on their overall health and resilience and help them pick simple small steps that they can do um, and that they can sort of start taking some control and some agency over to move things in a more constructive direction starting from wherever they are with whatever means they have um, and we've got various ways of supporting that um, so uh, we've got nutritional therapists we've got integrative doctors who are trained all of us work in the nhs but also have this broader understanding of the things which make a difference to health and well-being um, we've got counselors we've got body workers um, we've got fantastic gardens which are tended to lovingly by a group of wonderful garden volunteers and the sort of healing aspect of nature and and just being in a beautiful green surroundings w which are carefully planted so there's herbs that end up you know in the dinners and the and the food that we prepare but also beautiful scented trees and flowers and things which um, can really make a, a big difference to to people's well-being just spending time in nature we've got creative arts we've got um you know a, a wonderful art room and a poetry um poetry place we've got music um music sort of instruments and music therapies are part of what we what we can offer too so there's it's a real we're trying to help people find the things and the approaches that are right for them offering a kind of menu like a sort of smorgasbord of different things that might be might be useful so that people can pick and choose and start to find their best ways of really living their best lives and sometimes people you know have a, a very good prognosis and they're just kind of recovering from the from the experience and the trauma of of, of one episode of treatment with the full expectation that they'll you know they they should be living relatively cancer free although although it's still obviously an experience that will never go away other people who come and use our services i've got are dealing with ongoing cancer are living with cancer um, sometimes even with cancer that is progressing but our aim is to help them feel that they are as well as possible and sometimes it's really amazing that even people who have got physically advancing disease say do you know what you know despite that I've never felt so well in myself before because they have really attended to that aspect of healing themselves and and paying attention to, to their health and their well-being and their priorities in life and the things that really matter to them in a way that they've never been able to do before. So sometimes there is a kind of transformational aspect to the work that we do, not not always, but, but in many cases. So again, that's very inspiring and it's very wonderful when people can can meet others in similar situations who are who are who have their who are prepared to share their life experiences and and have something inspiring to say which generally most people do people are amazing and 
a lot of people sort of say, well, gosh, isn't that very depressing work, working at a place where everybody's got cancer? And it's really quite the opposite. People, uh, you know, it's inspiring to be around people who, who find so much within themselves and who, who, who are really in some ways a model of how to live well. Um, yeah. Well, that throws up so many questions. Um, absolutely marvellous, marvellous work. Um, of course, amazing. But going sort of to before the cancer diagnosis, from your experience of the way people deal with it and develop, and as you said, come into perhaps a period of feeling the best that they've ever felt, does that leave you sometimes wondering if that you know uh, the opposite of that that living badly under stress and everything actually may have been part of that journey i was at a talk um just a few days ago from gabor mate the canadian physician who um is absolutely convinced that there is essentially kind of a disease personality that that you know when you are when you see the world in a certain way when you don't take care of certain aspects of your lifestyle that that disease is waiting to happen what what's your feeling about that well i think it's it's really interesting and i think you know for me what you know i one of the reasons i love working at penny Brown is because there's relatively few side effects of what we do and and actually generally people feel better as a result of of having contacted us if we get it right but i think one of the few side effects that can happen, and it's a serious side effect, and I think we need to be aware of it, is this feeling of guilt and over-responsibility yes. for your own health. And I think it is really important that we don't sort of put, you know, as humans, we want to make meaning out of things, don't we? We want to find reasons for things. And I think it can be so easy to look back and think, oh, if only I hadn't done this, or if only my parents hadn't been like this, or if only... You know, and, and it can become quite an unproductive as I say, a sort of blaming um, and guilt, guilt-inducing sort of experience, which I don't think is good for anybody going forward. So I, I do believe that 21st century living puts an enormous stress on, on our physiology. I think we're not designed to live as we are generally being pushed to live these days. You know, we're designed to be more physically active. We're not designed to eat the kinds of foods that you see marketed in the average supermarket and definitely the average you know motorway service station where a lot of people stop and fuel themselves as well as fueling their cars we're we're not designed to to have artificial light 24 7 we're not designed to eat food that's not seasonal as much as we do so i think there's lots of things that do put a real pressure on our physiology but on the other hand i think we all know those people who you know smoke 20 a day for all their lives and you know lived into their 90s and all those people with really sort of depressive misanthropic personalities who are resiliently healthy you know physically so i think i think it's a real mixture i think it's our lifestyle i think it's our innate resilience that we that we maybe inherit and cultivate ourselves but i think the important thing is that there is always something we can do to help make our bodies a little bit more disease proof as it, as it were and and i think our bodies and our minds and i think you know illness comes in in many ways and sometimes i as I say, I work in general practice and I see people there who, you know, have blood test after blood test, test after test because they don't feel well. All of those tests are normal. We can't give them a diagnosis, but they are not well in themselves. There's something going on, uh, you know, at a, at a non-physical level, which means they are not living, you know, good and whole lives. Um, and sometimes they're thicker if you take that bigger picture than some of the people you know with who've been diagnosed with cancer and maybe been living with it for for many years so it's a really interesting question i think and and i think we need to be careful about the blame game because many of the people who come and see uh, you know see us with a diagnosis of cancer even young people have lived really healthy lives you know and and have done it have looked after themselves and you 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 know don't have any of the classic risk factors on paper and and still cancers happen to them so we we don't really know why that is but as i say i think i think 21st century living puts a pressure on us um that we need to actively manage our own resilience actively build um healthy lifestyles because that's not the, the way that um we just naturally live anymore if that no. makes sense 
No, I, I totally, totally agree with the blame situation. I mean, I think it's it's a really difficult, fine dividing line to to sort of try and make perhaps a patient understand that even if it's just lifestyle issues, that perhaps they were living in a way because they were unaware. Um, it's not always a conscious thing. Mm. People don't live well. It's not always a conscious decision that you don't manage stress particularly well. Um, but but just to sort of view it perhaps more as an opportunity. And, and I think in some ways it can also be quite empowering that you can actually say, well, you know, this thing happened to you, but you know, you also have an active role to play in your health. So, and I think that's exactly what you guys are all about, right? Yes. So I think we really just say nobody will ever be able to tell you exactly why you had cancer. It's probably a very multifactorial um, condition, as are many, many long-term conditions that we live with. The important thing is to look at, to do a stock take now. What's in balance? What's out of balance? What's going to help you going forward? How can we make changes that just may tip the balance between your body being able to to manage well despite the various stresses it's under, whether that's cancer treatment or whether that's just life and ongoing ongoing stresses or other other health complaints? Um, how can we how can we move forward um, addressing, as you say, giving giving our bodies the best conditions for them to really thrive? Um, and, and, you know, there are many, you know, I've never yet been in a situation. I've been working there, you know, over 10 years, um, you know, as medical, well, as the lead doctor, but even more years kind of been involved with the charity. And I've never yet found a situation where there's nothing that we can do. You know, I think there's, the lovely thing is that with that big holistic roadmap, there's always something that you can do to take the next step to a little bit more resilience or a little bit more likelihood of a of a good health outcome. Great. Now, of course, skeptics are always going to turn around and go, show me the data. So um, are there any uh, <clears throat> any evidence um, that this kind of approach actually has an effect on prognosis on outcome? Or is the very fact that you have patients who look better, feel better, and are doing better enough? Well, it's a good question. And it's a really good challenge. And I think... <clears throat> It's very difficult to do research on, you know, comprehensive lifestyle change because our research models love to pin things down to one intervention and kind of identical patients as much as you can. Many variables. Identical interventions. You know, try and reduce the variables to just that one thing that you're going to measure. But having said that, I mean, I think certainly for some elements of the approach that we take, there is really compelling evidence. And I think the most obvious one is physical activity. And, you know, the, the, the evidence that people who are physically active in a way that suits them com- uh, compared to people who are not physically active do better. They get less cancer, but once they get cancer, they do better. They live longer. They have better quality of life. They tolerate treatment better. They, they can um, ha- tolerate and, and sort of are able to complete treatment better. So, in all ways across the spectrum, I think, and, and this has been looked at in many different cancer types as well. We once, um, we regularly get invite speakers from elsewhere to sort of um, share their knowledge with the people who come to Pennybron. And we had an oncologist with us who, I'll never forget this, he said, you know, sometimes I feel really frustrated because I'm in a consultation with a patient. I'm the only person who can really discuss side effects, consent them to have this chemotherapy. You know, we're talking about, he gave the example of somebody with, you know, advanced bowel cancer, and maybe I'm offering them a type of chemotherapy that has an 8% of chance of increasing their survival, but I know if I could get them active, there might be a 35% difference in the survival, but I don't have time in my limited consultation to talk about that, so I just end up talking about the chemotherapy. So, you know, even an oncologist who's taken the time to, to look at the research is fully aware that actually, you know, sometimes the, 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 the high-tech solutions that we can offer are less powerful than some of the other things. It's not to say that you should do them instead at all. It, and, and sometimes they are absolutely, you know, the thing that's going to offer the best chance of cure of cancer for sure. But that change in the background conditions and helping people to recognize that this isn't just a feel-good thing. It really does have an effect on prognosis. Um, and I think, again, with nutrition, it's most of the studies have been done in kind of preventing cancer in the first place, but actually all of the 
you know, the WCRF, which is the World Cancer Research Fund, who've collated a lot of this evidence, say that for survivors of cancer, you know, the, the best available evidence says that actually if you follow the preventative guidelines, your chances um, are going to be improved uh, of living long and living well. And there is some interesting data from smaller studies where people have tried to do comprehensive lifestyle changes or elements of that. There's a really interesting study that's come out of the University of Florida looking at um, some women who were randomized to take a, a mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And initially it was, uh, it was um, they were looking at depression and, and mental health in those women, but they were following them up over a long period of time. And over a 15-year period, they showed that survival was improved in the people who had, had been trained and who were actively using these, these mindfulness-based stress, stress reduction techniques. So I think that there is, there is data. Um, there's not as much of it as we would want because it's difficult to fund because nobody can make a, a large profit from giving sort of stress management advice. Um, there's, there's no golden, golden magic medicine to sort of sell at the end of it. And as I say, it's difficult to get people really to be randomized to agree to these, these sorts of things because if they want to do them, they, they will. If they don't want to do them, they won't. And, and it, it involves maybe us thinking about different models of research to look at these, look at these impacts. Right. There's, there's a lot of new models of, of cancer as a disease that, that come mm. in and out of, almost in and out of fashion. <clears throat> Some of them have a little bit of longevity, others don't. One of the ones that obviously is drawing a huge amount of attention wow. is, is this, um, the idea of cancer being a metabolic disease. Um, how far have you seen this um, in, in the actual clinic? I mean, are you looking to reduce the you know, amount of sugar and carbohydrates and so on and so forth? Because if I understand it correctly, the idea is that without glucose as a, as a fuel stuff, a lot of cancer cells can't survive. They can't, they can't feed on more of the ketones um, that, that normal cells can, can actually, yeah, survive with. So how, how far do you adopt that model, if at all, and, and what's your feeling about it? Really good questions. And I think, as you say, it's, it's a burgeoning research field, these, these kind of hallmarks of cancer and how can we target the differences between a cancer cell and a normal cell and how, you know, the ideal treatment would obviously be a treatment that only affects cancer cells and doesn't affect any of the normal cells. And so research scientists are looking at what what's different about a cancer cell and how, how can we, you know, target, kill, starve, you know, inhibit those cells. And one of the things that is known is that cancer cells do metabolize in a different way from, do, you know, do, do use different different fuels or, or are, are, yeah, burn different burn fuel in a different way from normal cells now the you can become too simplistic with that and just say well if we can just get rid of glucose um then then a, ca a cancer cell wouldn't be able to survive the trouble is that most cell processes are dependent on glucose at some level and we break down all our fuels uh, you know in many ways to form glucose and tumors are very clever at deriving the foods they want, whatever we put in our mouths. Having said that, there's some really interesting, you know, other parallels. We know that when we eat a high sugar diet, things like insulin and insulin like growth factor go up, which are cancer drivers in themselves. And so it may not, it may not be as simple as just saying glucose, you know, sugar feeds cancer. And I think that can often that coming back to the blame and guilt thing, that can often put such a stress on people because, you know, you look at a banana and there's sugar in that. You look at a piece of fruit, you look at a carrot, and there's, there's, you know, that's broken down basically into glucose. So you end up feeling, what on earth can I eat? But I think the idea that avoiding large amounts of processed, refined carbohydrates as a way, as a really important cancer strategy, anti-cancer strategy, um, I think that is absolutely where we are. So I think that for all sorts of reasons, we, we know that those kind of empty calories of highly refined carbohydrates fuel, uh, you know, drive various processes in our body which aren't helpful. So they drive this kind of insulin resistance and high insulin and high insulin-like growth factor. They drive inflammation, which again is thought to be sort of carcinogenic. 
So, and, and they mean that people aren't eating the good stuff. Very importantly, if your plate is filled with, you know, pasta or, or, or potatoes or white bread or, um, then you're not going to have as much space for the nutrient dense, you know, colorful vegetables and fruit that really we all need to be eating much more of. So it, it feels that we can kind of, while we're watching science very closely, and I think the, that, you know, I think it is cancer as a metabolic disease, I think is a fascinating thing. I think, you know, we're we're really clear that yes there are genetic processes in cancer but they may not be the initial um driving thing and they may be a sort of downstream consequence a lot of the genetic things you know and i think it's a fascinating fascinating field um so diet and avoiding refined sugars or reducing as much as we can refined sugars and is is a big part of our, our sort of cancer armamentarium and something that we feel would be good not just for, for people with cancer but you know drives an awful lot of other illnesses that are a sort of you know modern day epidemics diabetes obesity those sorts of things so if we can make it easier for people to make lower carb choices um then i think that's that's a wonderful thing and again that goes back to kind of in 21st century living the availability of refined carbs is higher than it's ever been, and and that's what our you know kids are brought up on. That's what's advertised. That's what push. That's what pushed towards us. So we need to make very active choices to eat a more whole food, plant based, um, balanced diet that that really does support our, our our metabolic processes in the way that they they function best. Yeah, absolutely. I was um, speaking to Alyssa Apple last week mm-hmm. from, uh, of telomere fame and um you know she was describing the uh, the soda study that they did where they they banned um soda drinks these fizzy fizzy sweet drinks in the uh, in the medical center and actually managed to check people before and after and the results were just extraordinary i mean not only did they have longer telomeres from not drinking sugar but i mean they lost weight they were more active and they felt good because they were doing something good for their health but of course you know if you're walking past it every day (laughs) and it's half the price of fruit juice or something healthy or even a bottle of water sometimes then it's very difficult so i i guess that's where we have to become socially active and make sure that we encourage good lifestyle habits and I think the really interesting stuff, you know, work being done on how those kinds of highly processed, you know, high, highly refined carb diets affect our microbiome and the, and the bacteria yeah. that sit in our gut. That's fascinating. Within 10 days of eating an exclusively, you know, ultra processed diet, your microbiomial diversity can be reduced by 40%. And that can then take two years to recover after that. You know, it's just, it is, it is staggering. That's work done, you know, by Tim Spector at King's. Right. And it's kind of, it's really interesting and fascinating and quite scary. Um, when you think, as you say, that just how easy it is in a busy world to have the idea of generally, I know I eat healthy, but on the move and when I'm under stress, these are the things that are just so easy for us to reach for. Yeah, or even for little things. I mean, you know, um, um, I've, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I was always quite shocked. My mother sadly had uh, had breast cancer. It's actually not what she passed away from. But when I was taking her to the hospital for her, her infusions, um, you know, they would come around with the tea trolley and it was just loaded with chips and cookies. And you know that this all comes from a pace of love and people are just trying to be supportive and helpful. But there's a part of me going, take that stuff away. (laughs) It's not good for them, you know. And even cancer charities like Macmillan are kind of, you know, have a coffee morning, have a cake sale and things. Exactly, a cake sale. (laughs) Yeah, we try and have a a bake a a difference kind of thing. So, you know, it's not that you can't have a cake but you just need to you know usually kind of reduce the sugar that's in there and people it's just as delicious um but with half the amount of sugar in or for often or or change the kind of sweeteners or just put fruit in there instead of other you know and it's it's perfectly possible to have a really delicious um sweet treat that that isn't laden with refined carbs and that's what we need to kind of start start um promoting and making making easier for people absolutely and getting away from that to be nice you give somebody something something sweet um, uh, 
I know, you know, take a box of chocolates when you're going around to somebody's house, but, you know, it's, it's, exactly. we have to break some of our, our traditions, I suppose. And, and again, it's not a question if you can't ever do these things, but, you know, in balance, because, you know, the, the sort of giant size boxes of, of, you know, family tubs of, of confectionery and things like that. Again, if it was just, you know, a, a small bit for a treat, you know, from time to time, that's absolutely fine. I, I think, again, at Penny Brown, we really try and have a, a very inclusive diet and encourage people to think about the good things they want to put in rather than the things that they mustn't or shouldn't eat because that then starts to feel like punishment and deprivation. And, and, and actually, we are omnivores. We can eat all sorts of things. I often kind of point to, you know, Kalahari Bushmen who would come across a beehive and gorge themselves on honey and kind of, you know, but because they had such active lifestyles and because most, you know, they were foraging and having so much else in their diet, that wouldn't, that wouldn't cause a problem. So we all need feasts and high holidays and treats and, but they need to be treats, not every day, you know, three times a day, every day type of things. Right. Which then leads me on to the other side of that equation, which is fasting. There's a, mm. there's a lot of, of really interesting data coming up from, from people like Walter Longo, who's, who's doing the fasting mimicking diet, but even some people who are trying the uh, more intermittent fasting and saying that there are positive effects on cancer. Is that something that you also incorporate or are looking at? Yeah, well, we, again, I think we're kind of working with people where, wherever they're at. And, you know, some people that, you know, especially if you're going through cancer treatment, your appetite might be changed, your weight might be changing, your, your digestion might be affected by the treatment. So we have to work sensitively with, with people where they're at. And, you know, if, if they've already lost an awful lot of weight, then we need to think carefully about how we encourage them to nourish themselves. But certainly the, I think the the evidence around um, time-restricted eating and the fact that we're not really designed to eat round the clock 24-7 does seem quite convincing. Um, the Many people do experiment with some kind of fasting before um, cancer treatments and find that that for some of them, their, their side effects are, are much reduced if they, if they do that. It doesn't work for everybody. Some people do get, you know, feel that they really do need to eat through that time because that's what, that's what helps their nausea. But certainly it's something that we talk to people about and encourage and, and definitely help people focus on mindful eating as well, sort of being aware of the patterns that suit them the best. Um, and the sort of, you know, because I think everybody's metabolism is different and it depends so much on, you know, your age and the type of work you do and the type of other, other type of lifestyle that you lead, how to best nourish yourself. But certainly I think the fasting, you know, and again, it plays into the kind of, it's a great way of tackling insulin resistance and people who fast generally have lower insulin like growth factors and, and a lower tendency for that sort of whole metabolic syndrome in, insulin resistance pattern that we can see. So it's a great way of, 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 of helping our bodies. And, I, and, and again, if you think probably evolutionary, we were designed to go through periods where we could cope with not, not being fed for a long time when we were hunter-gatherers, foragers. We wouldn't necessarily have had food on our plate three times a day, every, you know, every day. Right. So, yes, I think it's a really interesting, interesting field and we do talk about it. Great. One thing that um, struck me right at the very beginning where you were talking about the, the way that you take in patients is that you also take in their friends and family. Now, mm. um, I also spoke to Michael Dixon uh, with his social prescribing uh, protocols, which I just think I'm <laughs> so amazing. It's going to take mm. the way the way that we look at at healthcare. But what? How much of that of a factor does that play? So, I mean, I know that you're supporting the relatives, but the role of friends and family and community for the patient themselves is huge, and, and we know that. Uh, can you can you really see that? Are those patients the ones that do better? Well, it's, we don't have any way at the moment of really tracking and comparing people. There are so many different factors that we would have to kind of measure and monitor. But certainly social support and love and, and um, healthy relationships are a major factor in people's well-being. We have a kind of, uh, uh, we call it the Bristol whole life approach where you kind of obviously individually people's mind, body, spirit and emotions is all part of the fact, part of the 
um, the mix, but then also their relationships, the communities that they spend time with, um, the environments they spend time in, and the practical things that they have to cope with, kind of work, money, those sorts of things, which are maybe a little bit more external to the individual, but have huge impact on them. Um, and so we pay attention and ask people to kind of rate their resilience, and we, and we try and develop strategies to support them in all of those sort of eight areas, which we think are important. And it's interesting, um, a book that was brought out in 2018, so last year, called Anti-Cancer Living, which is by Lorenzo Cohn and Alison Jeffries, his wife, um, based very much on the work that David Servan Schreiber did um, and the book that he wrote sort of 10 years previously, talks about a mix of six of things that, that, you know, strategies that help. And the number one that they put there is love and social support, kind of above nutrition and above exercise. And so, and so I think... Because I guess many times that is what makes people feel comfortable in who they are. It's what, what drives them and gives them that strength to make those other changes and to live those lifestyles. Because we are, you know, we're social beings, our, our health and well-being. We know that from our physiology. One of the things that makes us feel safe and connected and able to switch off our fight-flight response is the presence of loving others, whether that's physical touch and presence or just good relationships and good sort of interactions, social interactions with others. So I think it's huge. And I think it's one of the things that we're proud to stuff at Penny Brown is that attention to the, to the wider environment in which people are spending their time and, and the social um, networks that support them. Wonderful. So, so yeah, absolutely. Great, great work. And maybe the last question on, on this topic is, of course, for some patients, sadly, the outcome is not going to be a good one. Um, preparing for death, I think, is also a hugely important factor. I think we live in a very death-phobic society. We really very rarely experience it. Um, and when we come into contact with it, we sort of push it aside because nobody wants to think about it. Um, is that part of your work too, that, that if that's maybe the place that a patient is not, you know, is going to go, that you actually help them on that journey too? Definitely. And I'm really glad you raised that because I think for all of us, however far away our death is, it's coming at some point. We are all... 100%. So, yeah. <laughs> 100%. It's the one thing that we can be really certain of. And as you say, we live in a death-denying age. And I think for us to truly live well, without fear, um, we do need to face into that fact and accept it as not a failure and not, not, not something to be, to be frightened of, but something to embrace and to really prepare for dying as well as we can, just like we prepare for living as well as we can. And I think the two things are absolutely intertwined. And I'm so glad that there is beginning to be a bit of a movement, you know, through dying matters and um, death cafes and those sorts of things of, of, of trying and, you know, death doulas. And, you know, I think there is a, a small movement that says this is actually um, having a negative impact. Our death denying sort of focus is actually starting to impact us negatively and stop us living as well as we can so we really do try and see that and you know i think that would be part when we talk about mind body spirit emotions i think in the spirit bit we do often address how how do people feel about their own mortality whether or not they're 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 facing an, a sort of soon or imminent death and actually in many ways we talk about realistic hope as well and i think that's really important that it's possible to be hopeful even if one is very aware that one is approaching death quite soon and what do you hope for and how you hope it's not all about false hope and i'm going to i'm going to beat this and that and there's a miracle's going to happen tomorrow but there is a way of finding realistic hopefulness um and and a joy and an appreciation of the present moment and and the present um possibilities as well that that can really enhance life there's um you know, we've got a lovely little bookshop, uh, well, a shop that sells some books as well as other products at, at Penny Brown. And one of the books that we stock is With the End in Mind, which is a fantastic book by consultant palliative care physician called Catherine Mannix, who, if you haven't had her on your podcast, you probably um, should have her. It's a wonderful book about kind of normalizing um, what a good death can be and how, how healing for 
whole families and communities, that process of leave taking and, and sort of celebrating can, can be when it's done well. And it's something that I think can give a lot of pleasure. And I mean, it can be scary for sure. And you do need to, to sort of handle that whole kind of conversation and be ready to, to offer it, but, but maybe not push it until the, until the time is right. Uh, you know, sometimes just having the possibility of when I when I want to talk about it or when I feel ready to talk about it then I will and it's amazing how some people like to think about it years months in advance other people it's it's a closer thing but I think a bit like cancer you know the word cancer wasn't used we had all sorts of euphemisms for it didn't we you know a little growth or the big C or all sorts of things now the word cancer is being talked about and there's some wonderful you know you me and the big C podcast type things great conversations about cancer I think death is the next taboo that we will start being able, you know, more normally to have those conversations. And it's so freeing. You know, my mum is 91 and luckily she's the sort of person who really, you know, I think she's made it so easy for us to think about and prepare for and talk about what, you know, how, how things might be, what she might want. I think it's a really, it's a real gift to people when people can feel open and um and and more more accepting and you know i think again we're part of nature and and that's one of the lovely things that nature can offer us is this cyclical you know there has to be death there to be life and the two sides of the same coin and i think as we separate ourselves into these sort of 21st century bubbles where we think we can control everything and we're total masters of our destiny then i think we separate from some of that and that gives us gives us pain and distress and so absolutely and cancer is again one of those opportunities um for people to think about something that normally they wouldn't they wouldn't have to or they wouldn't um have an opportunity to so it can again that can be part of a real healing because i think once people have have come to terms with their own mortality they can often redirect their lives or re refocus their lives in a way which gives them much more joy and purpose and meaning and it is it is really uh, you know one of the you know i i sometimes think it feels really sort of um uh i don't know what the right word is but you know to talk about the gifts of cancer sounds you know most people with cancer would not think it's a gift and i completely um empathize with that and sort of really know that but in terms of some of the silver linings that sometimes it can bring it is this it is this opportunity for us to really reappraise our lives and our and our coming death in a way that that many people don't get the opportunity to yeah absolutely i totally agree with that I've experienced myself a lot of clients who who have gone through a, a very very serious health issue, come out the other end, and quite often go as far as to say that was the best thing that ever happened to mm. me, because otherwise they would have trundled on, on those tracks of of a life which was not rewarding, satisfying, or healthy, and suddenly they just get this wake up call that could all end tomorrow. Um, Luckily, it doesn't for them, and, and they have the opportunity to take that and, and refocus, you know, whether it's living a healthier lifestyle or whether it's just doing something that makes you happier or spending more time with, you know, nobody on their deathbed ever says they wish they worked more, right? It's always about <laughs> what I didn't do and the friends and the family, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we as healthcare professionals can help facilitate that process rather than just patch, patch things up and kind of, you know, <clears throat> take the opportunity to sort of suppress a symptom. And I think, you know, I, I think sometimes cancer, whether or not it's been caused by a lifestyle thing, often we can see it as calling us into a different, you know, into a different sort of, mode maybe or a different right. a different phase of our lives and i think if we can listen to that call rather than kind of think i want to go back to the old the old me because most people say you know it will have changed them forever whatever the outcome you know an experience as big as that or or any other as you say you know serious life-threatening condition or serious shock or trauma can will change you and how can we help people change it in a way that makes them grow and become more whole and if we can facilitate that, I think it's a job well done, really. Great. 
So, um, Catherine, for somebody who's listening to this and has either themselves, sadly, or a friend um, received that horrendous diagnosis, you know, the uh, the voodoo curse, <laughs> um, how and they want they want that kind of support and and approach that Penny Bron offers. What what's the process? How can they get in touch with you? And what what can they expect? Um, so. I mean, the important thing, as I said at the beginning, all our services or core services are free. So people can, um, and, and I mean, the, the, the other side of that is then that we obviously don't get, we don't charge fees and we don't get any statutory funding. So we do rely on donations and grants and our, we've got a very active fundraising department and many of the people who've used our services go on to I don't know, run marathons for us or do fundraising things um, for us for which we're in, you know, incredibly grateful. So we are always trying to balance providing this free service with trying to generate enough income to, to mean that we can keep the, keep the show on the road. But if people are interested in using our services, they can self-refer. So we've got a website, which is www.pennybron.com is penny and then bron is b-r-o-h-n dot org dot uk and um we have sort of entry level things and people can come if they're if they're you know if they're able to on a initial two-day residential or they can just come for a, an introductory half a day or have a telephone appointment with us if they're too far away for that um to to just sort of see how our services might might be useful um so we ask people to give us as much background medical information as they can, maybe a letter from a hospital or something like that, just so that we can, um, uh, that we can really integrate their care because we want all of our approaches to work alongside whatever other treatment people are having and to not cause any sort of negative interactions or, and, and not cause any stress from different opinions of different things. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to work with people's teams as much as possible so that they get an integrated, constructive package of things working well together to give them the best chances. But people can come and stay. So we also offer some of these introductory two-day courses in other parts of the country. So it's worth looking on our website. Um, we have some courses running in the southeast and on the south coast, some running in the Midlands. Um, some running in Scotland. So it, we've got, we have got some outreach services too. And we've got a lot of information on the website as well. We have a helpline that um, people can ring and get more advice about how our services could be used for them. And as I say, it's not just for people with cancer, but it's for people affected by cancer. So those in those kind of close um, circles too. And even if the person with cancer doesn't want to use our services, if somebody's kind of very involved and wants to wants to get some more support themselves, we can do that too. So that's quite good to know too. Wonderful. Well, any way we can support you, um, be happy to do so. Maybe just spreading the word and um, spreading the word would be wonderful. Encourage people any, out there to, uh, to donate and uh, not so sure about running marathons. <laughs> It can be whatever people, people are doing all sorts for us. And just, just as you say, spreading the word, if anybody knows a business who's looking for a charity of the year or exactly. uh, and, and sponsoring small little things, we try and produce information for people who are wanting to, wanting to pursue a more integrative approach. So, and, and we're always happy to talk to people. We, a lot of our services, so the, the, the doctors, the nutritional therapists, the counselors can talk to people on the phone if people, uh, you know, are physically far away from us or are not able to get to us from any, for any other reason. Right. So it's, it, it's, yeah, spread the word and, and we really hope that, that there's more of this. And I must say that actually our, our interactions with the NHS and with the private sector are really encouraging. I think oncologists, especially the newer generation of oncologists, a lot of cancer nurses are really getting this more holistic approach. And, you know, Melinda have been great in spreading the, the sort of need for things that they call the recovery package need for every person who's finishing cancer treatment to, to have some advice about diet and exercise and stress management you know we're also talking about actually by the time they finish treatment you know it wouldn't it be great actually if they could have that before they start treatment and so that right from the time of diagnosis or even before diagnosis people are aware of these things but yeah i think the world is changing and I, i'm really hopeful there's some great books out there as i say this anti-cancer living book is a is a great one there's a wonderful book on um 
Seven Ways to Build Your Resilience by a great doctor called Chris Johnson that's just come out. Um, so I think, and lifestyle medicine as well in among the medical, medical profession is really becoming um, a, a movement in itself, just saying we shouldn't be reaching for our prescription pads immediately. There's all sorts of things that we can be doing. Um, Dr. Roman Chatterjee has got a wonderful couple of books and a podcast mm-hmm. that are promoting that. So there's the, I think in the College of Medicine, as you, as you say, Mike Dixon and the, so, the social prescribing movement, I think we're beginning, the pendulum's beginning to swing back, you know, and I think the, the days of big pharma being completely in control, I think there is a little bit of a counter-revolution coming. That says, <laughs> no, there's other things just that, you know, we need more than medicine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, cancer spreads all over the body. So why shouldn't we treat the whole body? Mm, That's the way I look at it. And as a a friend of mine pointed out uh, the other day, um, totally blew me away when she said this was, you know, the only organ that doesn't get cancer is your heart. So that's the place that you have to treat it from, which I (laughs) Just gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say that cancer doesn't just affect all the body. It affects so many parts of us that all need healing and attention. And I think that's the thing is that cancer, like many other illnesses, but, but partly because of the stigma and the sort of whole, uh, you know, the, the fact that it can strike anybody at any age. And, and as you say, with this very varying prognosis, I think it, it really is one of the illnesses that just has this global impact in a way on us as human beings and and we really do need to attend to all of that if we are going to be able to to live well for as long as possible amazing i totally agree with that and thankfully there are people like you who are um at absolutely at the at the front and although i don't like the idea of fighting cancer um i don't think that's the right approach Um, no i don't think it is either i uh, think i think it's amazing that that you're doing the kind of work that you're doing and i really acknowledge you for that and thank you for it because i know it's a it's bold move (laughs) oh well it's 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 very rewarding work and I think there you know there are there are great people out there doing great work and great research um there's the Society of Integrative Oncology in the States and we have a a little British Society of Integrative Oncology that's trying to sort of cultivate those little green shoots as well so I, I think this this, is, this isn't going to go away and and there are some great great people and great initiatives but thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this podcast because it is all part of just getting the knowledge out there that these approaches exactly. are there that they that people don't have to choose either or I, I don't know if you in in the papers again there was a sad story of um katie Britton jordan who you know i, I think it, it's you know she was a lady who who refused all conventional treatment you know many people embrace conventional treatment and still die but the press doesn't go all over them so i think that it, it was a very but for me, it was a kind of the way it was reported was so polarizing. It was kind of, you know, she died because she didn't have conventional medicine. Well, you know, we don't know why she died. And, and there are plenty of people who go absolutely follow every bit of instruction that their doctors get them and may still die. But it's just more about how can we combine the best of these worlds? How can we help people to see it's not either or? But if you, you know, but both may have something really valuable to offer and may be able to, to kind of complement uh, and, and enhance the effects of, of each other and minimize the side effects. So I, for me, it feels like a win-win thing to combine them as intelligently Absolutely. as you can. Absolutely. And putting the patient in the middle, which I think is so... Totally. Important. Yes. And I making sure that... Sorry, go, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, making sure that that with the best will in the world and the best, you know, coming from a good place, that we don't make it more stressful and harder for them. I think that's, you know, we talked about one of the side effects being blame and responsibility. The other side effect is this kind of fragmenting and confusion that everybody's got a different sort of take on things. And actually, again, I think it's trying to get that sort of helicopter view where we're saying kind of mostly we're saying the same thing and how and actually it's up to an individual to make that work in their own lives and it's up to us to help that person do that rather than kind of come with our strong opinion or you must do this or you must do that or you must stop doing that actually you know there are so many different ways to 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 you know peel this orange or whatever <laughs> with the right metaphor is so many ways to approach it and it's about making it easier and less stressful and more enjoyable for people Great. Wonderful. I can see that our time is well run over, but um, there are still three very small, tiny little questions that I ask all of my guests, and I'd love you to answer them too. So 
I always say that, you know, mind, body, spirit, medicine is what we're all about. And I like to capture that in, in the words health, happiness, and serenity. So for you, what what is your personal interpretation of the word health? What does that word actually mean to you? Hmm. I think the word balance has got to be pretty close to health. And I think it is that sense of of things being in flow and in balance with each other. So it's dynamic. I think health is not a state, but it's a it's a process. And I think it is about that moving towards healing and wholeness um, as well. So um, I love I love Phil Hammond's uh, Clangers acronym, and he says you know it's based on the five ways to well-being, but he's kind of added things. So Clangers stands for C, connect, connect with each other and be connected with yourself. L is for keep learning. Um, A is for be active, and that's the sort of um, physical activity side of things. N is for notice, and that's the mindfulness in us. You know, we need time to just be and notice. Um, G is for give back, and I think that's a hugely important one, and it kind of links in with the connection. E is for eat well. R is for resting or relaxing, and S is for sleep. And I think those are all, if we can be doing all of those things, then I think our chances of attaining health are pretty good. Great acronym. I love it. (laughs) What about happiness? What does happiness mean for you? And is it something you actively pursue? Mm. I think it's something that bubbles up when, when, when we are kind of in conditions that are, that are, that are health inducing. So for me, it's not something that I actively pursue, but I notice it if it's not there and I try and put steps in place to, to create the right environment for happiness to, to sort of occur. And I do think that, that in my interactions with other people, it is a useful gauge if, if I'm, if I feel that the, the effects are increasing other people's happiness then I feel I'm on the right on the right track happiness and resilience I think I try professionally I try and think in every encounter with a patient or a client have I have I at the end are they a little bit more resilient as a result of this time that we spent together and if if that is the case then I can again feel job well done and if I've contributed to human happiness by fueling some of that that the sort of contributing to the conditions in which I think happiness arises then i feel then that's that's a worthwhile thing wonderful and lastly serenity um in this crazy crazy world that we live um you spoke of mindfulness i think it's so important that we actually really go out of our ways uh, to turn down the noise and and not just keep feeding ourselves with stimulus um do you have any practices where you can just turn down the noise and and go a little bit inside Yes, um, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's something, maybe one of the hardest things that we need to most actively cultivate in today's busy, busy world. Um, I play the clarinet. And for me, when I am playing my clarinet, I am in one of my most serene sort of um, states. I also really love nature i'm lucky enough to you know, live near a near a big communal garden near some lovely woods as i say the, the grounds at penny Bron where i work are beautiful i can cycle along the canal co-path to get to work and i and i think that for me being in nature regularly is a huge source of uh of serenity and a huge a way of me tapping into that it's it's nature has so much to teach us and so much to offer us and particularly for me i don't know being near beech trees is a is a wonderful place where i where i feel um i can take liberal doses of serenity and ingest them imbibe them and and sort of store them for later use yeah magical that's wonderful Thank you so much, Catherine. I really, really appreciate everything that you do and also for taking so much of your precious time to come and talk to me today. It's a pleasure, Tatiana. It's lovely to talk to you and I hope, hope 
your listeners enjoy something and really happy to be in touch with anybody who wants to find out more about integrative medicine about integrative oncology or about the work of penny Brown uk really happy Great. to put links to penny Brown and how people can contact you in the show notes so lovely Great. thank you very much all right thank take you. care then so dear listeners i hope you enjoyed that episode with catherine as much as i did what amazing work she and penny Braun all do um just to emphasize that point again because i think people may not really appreciate what a gift this institution is is that all of their services are free so there's really no barriers to being able to get the most wonderful warm and amazing care and help and support in all aspects of living with a disease like cancer whether that leads to a hopefully positive outcome or not it's the quality of life for the time that we have that's the most important and i think that they can really really contribute to that so please go ahead and check out their website if if you feel that would be a benefit and if this podcast was of value and of benefit to you please share it it's so important that we get this information out there in fact if you're looking at your um, or listening to the podcast at the moment why don't you just take a screenshot of your phone with uh, with where you're listening from and put it out on your social media let people know because the more people that get to hear about this it's easier it is the more our audience grows the easier it is for people to actually find us new listeners and maybe get some value from the information that we share as well and on that note of course please go over to any podcast platform that you listen from especially itunes um soon to be apple Podcasts, and please rate and review us subscribe of course and come and check us over at londonheal.com and sign up and become a london heal insider if you would like to obtain extended show notes for future episodes of london heal they'll just drop in with all the links to the next episode in your mailbox and so my dear listeners until the next episode of london heal it leaves me just to wish you as always health happiness and serenity